Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior, to another Tactical Tuesday, a short-form conversation with subject matter experts designed to give you practical tools, tips, and advice for building your solar business or career. I'm really excited for you to listen to what we have today because it is more than just a Tactical Tuesday. You see, last week we dropped a two-hour and 10-minute conversation with my friend and mentor, Mr. Bill Nussi, who today has released his brand new book, a book called Freeing Energy, how innovators are using local scale solar and batteries to disrupt the global energy industry from the outside in. And in typical Tactical Tuesday fashion, I intend to help you gain insight into something that would otherwise take you a little bit longer to figure out. The transition to clean energy is moving far too slowly, according to my friend Bill Nussie. He has mapped the trajectory of the clean energy transition for the last four and a half years. And in his book, he's on a mission to understand how it will benefit us all, especially with regards to local energy. His book, Freeing Energy, explores the history and future of the grid, why the coming infrastructure and investment wave is the largest any of us have ever seen. And he goes very, very deep into how you, Solar Warrior, can play your part. Bill is a friend and mentor here on Suncast and even a past guest. So we've had an inside look at how he has built not just the podcast, but all of the inner workings of how this book came together. And if you want that whole long story, well, you should have tuned in on episode 421 last Friday, December 3rd. Thankfully, uh, I've taken the time to cut out some of the more interesting clips that I feel cut right to the meat and potatoes and package them here in this shorter episode in the hopes that you'll listen and be intrigued and want to go listen to some of the other things that you won't get in this shorter form. If you're unfamiliar with who Bill Nussie is, well, not only should you listen to episode 125 of Suncast, but you should know that he's a career tech CEO with three successful exits, including an IPO and One of those exits was to none other than IBM, where he went on to be IBM's VP of corporate strategy, leading the company's overall global strategy. He's created thousands of jobs and billions of dollars in shareholder value. And he's interviewed more than 300 very interesting individuals to glean the insights that have gone into this book. Now, as I mentioned, the longer interview definitely gets into some of the more esoteric and deeper answers that he gives to my probing questions. One of the things that are particularly interesting for me is how the grid and local energy make batteries more valuable, the Trojan horse that is electric vehicles, how solar is not a fuel. We dive into his thoughts on Clayton Christensen and how the utility industry are not the bad guys at all while they will still be disrupted. Not here in this short episode are his advice to policymakers and what concerns him about the coming clean energy transition. We even dig into his favorite fun fact that none other than Bill Gates touts as a remarkable fact. 
and how we in the media can do a better job to play our part. But none of that is in this short form. I won't go into all the details here because you're here already. You've pressed play, so listen on. If you're new here, thank you. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to earn your attention and for lending us your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you've got, and that's your time. If you want to check out more shows just like this, well, we've got more than 400 additional founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. Of course, you're probably right there in a podcast player like Spotify, so you've got access to all 421 episodes at your disposal. I hope you'll queue up a few more. But for now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. I'm really honored to have an opportunity to sit down with you and talk about a book that you've written that in many ways seeks to address both the contextual history and the prognostication for how disruption and innovation can be harnessed for the clean energy sector. And from the vantage point of someone who from a very early age, has seen how technology can both enable and disrupt whole industries, not just segments of industries. You wrote a book that was the muse for your podcast. It was the fabric of a quilt that you have been working on for several years, the title of which is Freeing Energy, which is the same as your podcast. The subtitle is How Innovators Are Using Local-Scale Solar and Batteries to Disrupt the Global Energy industry. From the outside in. Yet, by all accounts, including your own, you have no energy industry experience. And you're not a journalist. Definitely not. Not an academic. Nope. What gave you the confidence that you could write a book in an industry that you've never been a part of? Well, it's actually kind of the reverse. Mm. How do you get to know an industry you know nothing about? Mm. And, uh, Roll back to 2016, one of my close friends, Mike, calls me late at night at uh, 8 p.m. I was sure it was some of, one of our mutual friends was sick or something. And he says, I figured out what you need to do. <laughs> I said, okay, <laughs> what do I need to do? And he says, you've been talking about this energy stuff. And I was at IBM at the time. Mm. And he said, we're getting tired of hearing about it. And it's time for you to do something. I said, well, that's the problem. I, I'm not sure what to do. He says, well, that's why I'm calling you. He said, when you started at Silverpop, which was a marketing tech company I sold to IBM. He said, you knew all about marketing. I said, no, you know, I didn't. I, I didn't know anything about it. And he goes, remind me how you learned. And I said, I wrote a book. Mm. And he said, that's why I'm calling you with an expletive. And it was the biggest idea I'd ever had in my life. And I felt like my brain was literally at 110 degrees. And I ended up leaving IBM, giving my notice 36 hours later. It's probably the most passionate. I stayed for three months to wind out all the projects we were working on, but it was the biggest idea I ever had. And the beauty of it is that you can call up the smartest people in the world and ask them the dumbest questions and build a network all at the same time. And it has worked wonderfully. It's one of the ways I met you. And I have met, I've interviewed 320 people on six continents. I've climbed to the top of wind turbines, ladder straight up 300 feet. I've sat in the headquarter offices of Jinko and other solar companies. I've been to factories, mud huts in Africa. It has been the adventure of a lifetime. And I'm so grateful that Mike gave me that idea. And then of course, once the idea was out, a lot of my other close friends and family, you got to do this. Okay. I'll spend a year, write a book. I love it. That was four years ago. Four and a half years ago. Yeah. (laughs) You, I recall in the book, you said that there was a moment where, quote, it all clicked. And I think that several listening will maybe identify with that, but the, the majority of us have heard folks 
say, yeah, it clicked. And, and maybe we have no context around what that looks or feels or sounds like. At the time, you were one of the top 100 executives at IBM. Silver Pop had been acquired. You had no lack of opportunity to grow, no lack of, of income. You had a successful exit from previous uh, companies. What did it, what clicked? What did you feel in that moment that compelled you now, now is the time for me to move beyond this fantastic opportunity I've got here at IBM and try something new again? There was really two big, maybe three big moments. The first was we were sitting around a table like this with IBM executives and we had all the phones and the press people and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and everybody, the Financial Times were all writing about how my company had been acquired. Yeah. It was a wonderful moment. And I was so overwhelmed. I thought, you know, I want to remember this. So I stepped out when there was a break and I sat in a small conference room with myself and about 10 or 15 seconds, I'm like, holy cow, look, I just made a ton of money yeah. and I'm gonna be well-respected because I sold to IBM and I'm gonna be working at IBM for a while. And then it hit me that, I don't know from where, it just hit me like a lightning bolt, but there are all these people I've read about and met who have devoted their lives to a cause. And these people don't have the financial resources or the network or the comfort or the experience that I do. And yet they're devoting themselves to it. How could I do any less? And that was really the first thing that set me off on a journey that, staying directly in tech as I had done for 25 years previously was the way to go. And that was mm -hmm. some other things along the way. And then the last one was when I was at IBM and we were looking at all the industries where IBM might use IoT, had a team of folks working on it. And we looked at every imaginable industry, but and they were just going by, the teams were writing things up and there was this one, electricity. And I said, well, I, I, a million years ago, I got an electrical engineering degree. Let, let me look at that. I'm curious where that's going. And we were shocked we were all shocked how undigitized mm. electricity is. It's the whole electric grid is we all depend on this powering what we're doing here. Actually, we're powered by solar right now, but generally powered by the grid. It's just a gigantic single analog circuit. It, I couldn't believe it. So at first I was like, this is a huge opportunity for digitization and mm -hmm. that caught my interest. But then I got more and more interested. There's this thing called solar. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's this thing where you can take the sun and turn it directly into electricity. And what I was... And, and there was these trends where it's getting cheaper and cheaper, like every other technology I'd ever seen. And I thought to myself, there's a really good chance that solar is going to become the least expensive way to generate electricity in human history. Yeah. And I said, now that's interesting because if that happens, this isn't just a digitization story. This is an absolute disruption. Mm. And sure enough, it's already happened. But that was what triggered me into clean energy was this is going to be a disruption, just like we saw with personal computing, we saw with digital marketing, we saw with the mobile phones, technology is gonna disrupt the industry and I had to be part of it. Yeah. How, given the incredible breadth of history of the energy sector, how do you distill the specific framework and steps that you're gonna to utilize to come up to speed quickly on an industry and learn where there are opportunities? Can you talk to me a bit about how you thought about that and how that ultimately informed the structure of the book? That's a great question, man. And while I was at Greylock, which is a venture firm I worked at for a while, I looked at 3,000 business plans, literally, and met hundreds of entrepreneurs. And one of the skills that helps in venture capital is to be able to assess the structure and opportunities and risks within an industry or a segment that you aren't familiar with. And how do you do that? And so having spent years there, I had a little muscle memory on how to go after it. But in general, the question 
is the question that all strategists, corporate strategists, the McKinsey's of the world, it's the, how do you take a complex, an infinitely complex, nuanced situation and break it into pieces that are bite-sized and can be actioned? And you do that through, a, I think, a heuristic process, if you don't mind my using that word. Yeah. But it's both, it, you feel your way through it, right? It's a bit, it's more art than science. And you talk to people, you try to get the most credible people you can find. And some people who are brilliant will give you their perspectives, but it doesn't make sense to you. And someone who may not be as demonstrably brilliant, but they can explain it to you in a way that makes sense to you, you start to form this model. Yeah. And then sometimes there's a hole in the model, so how can I learn that? Mm. And, and I can read. But the really wild part about the book is I, I haven't really thought about it until you asked the question. There were weeks where I lived in spreadsheets. I lived in mm. an EIA database. I have pulled down million, tens, hundreds of millions of data points and analyzed them with statistical anal analysis packages and spreadsheets. I have a massive database that I created for all the, the data that was relevant to local energy from the EIA and IEA and others. And then the other time I'm talking to people. And then the other time I'm researching science papers and trying to see what this word means because I don't know what it means. Someone once said of me that they thought my superpower was curiosity. And I've always reflected on that. <laughs> and I think I just really went where my curiosity took me. But I'll, I'll wrap up the answer with something that my wife would be nodding vigorously for, that the problem with a curiosity-driven approach is it has to be contained with the reality of what are you gonna do with it? So yeah. I chase down a lot of, there's versions of my book out there that are really even another 50,000 words longer. Yeah. And they're just sitting on the cutting room floor because they were too broad. And so in the last two years, I had to really narrow the topic down to what it is now, which is a book for innovators for how to navigate the clean energy industry and the transition. I wanna spend a lot of time here in what your vision for the journey the reader goes through is and who the ideal reader is, what the key concepts are they're gonna unpack. But let's start with who you believe ultimately should read the book. I mean, that was a big part of the journey because as, yeah. as the book was very early, people were saying, who are you writing it for? Yeah. And that was both a practical, tactical question, who's your audience? Yeah. And it was also an emotional question because as a writer, I can't even think of myself as a writer, but as a person who was writing, I was trying to picture who's gonna read it. And that changed over the time. And it was about a year and a half ago, COVID was getting underway and I had a lot of time where I could focus that I wouldn't normally have had, it became really clear. And so the dedication to the book, and it's mentioned several times within the book, is that this is for the thousands and thousands of innovators who have not yet joined this industry, but we desperately need you yeah. to join this, one of the most important movements in human history. Yeah. And the good news the book tries to get across is that you can do so much more than the important things you're doing, like voting and advocating and writing letters. Yeah. Because today that's the only knob that people think they can turn to affect the transition away from fossil fuels. The entire book's about things that you can do, not necessarily as an individual, but as an innovator. Is somebody who wants to be the first person in their neighborhood to have solar. Mm -hmm. Is somebody who wants to teach a class or write a letter to a legislator that, that may have a perspective that legislator hasn't heard before. But there's also things like building companies and investing or joining mm -hmm. a company, joining a, a nonprofit advocacy group. The, yeah. This is now the time for individual actions to start taking place. And two years ago, it was too early. Now is the time, and that's what the book's about. It's written for all those people that are thinking, mm -hmm. can I do something and how would I do it? Yeah, thank you. I, I think that by and large, we have two categories of people, those who are thinking about getting in the industry and those who are already in the industry, usually mid to senior level folks that are trying to, conceptualize what it looks like for them to move up or move out and start their own business, entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs. And 
I have a heart for folks in the oil and gas industry and for folks in the tech industry who, for the most part, well-meaning, have entered into a career that is either a dead end emotionally or morally or financially because the industry is going to lose their base and the fossil fuel industry just won't have investment from the, their previous investment base. And they're nonetheless talented and well-meaning and, and intelligent with those folks in mind. And some of them are employee-minded and some of them are, are entrepreneur-minded. I think that a lot of them are finding our show because they're entrepreneur-minded. If you could recommend, I don't know, maybe three chapters of the book for those folks and they're just skimmers, where would you contextually want folks to spend time in the book? And then I want to get into our audience, what chapters you think are going to resonate for the Suncast audience. I think someone coming from the traditional energy industry, mm -hmm. many that I have had the privilege of meeting are still set in a worldview that is just outdated. Yeah. And so there's a couple chapters in the book, Technologies to Fuels, and then The Battle for Public Opinion. Mm -hmm. And I have seen some jaws drop when people, even people in our industry mm -hmm. read it about, first of all, the, the solar is so far and above the best source of energy and so many first principles ways. It's completely different than wind. It's completely different than biomass. And it's certainly different than fossil fuels. And one of my favorite stats, for example, is that there's in the month, this month that we're recording, this, there will be more sunshine hitting the earth in terms of energy than mm -hmm. all the reserves of all the fossil fuels and all the uranium. Yeah. So in one month, the sun is going to generate more energy at a, you know, a bazillion miles away and hitting the earth. This earth will have more energy than all reserves put together. So the degree to which that's available inspires people to realize that while we, hey, there's probably a role for biomass, there's definitely a role for wind, but solar is in a unique position amongst all their energy sources. And by the way, it's the only one that's going to be continuing to plummet in cost, continuing to plummet. So it's not just bigger and better. It's also going to be half and soon a quarter of the cost of any other way to generate electricity. So that would be the folks who come from a worldview that they want to have it challenged, mm -hmm. but people that have accepted that, hey, solar is the, 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 the runaway train, it's working, it's the best bet. I would say, how do you apply that? Is There's other chapters in the book, the chapters on patterns of innovation. If you're a strategic thinker like me, you want to understand the first principles. But the part that I think most people who are thinking, what's my entry point? The chapter on billion dollar disruptions. Yeah. And if you really know the industry, there won't be too many surprises there, but hopefully there'll be some surprises about why and what. Like why, what role will hydrogen play and why? And also, there's a lot of people, particularly earlier in their careers, that are really trying to connect their hearts with their jobs. And so one area where clean energy plays a role that we don't, you and I don't think about every day, but for outside the US and low-income parts of the world, and Jim Rogers, actually, who you mentioned a moment mm -hmm. ago, really put my head and heart around this. He was devoted to this in mm -hmm. the final years of his life. He has a book called Lighting Africa. And uh, I subsequently went there a few times. And so also in the chapter on disruptions is how small-scale energy systems are disrupting the almost non-existent grids in the poorer parts of the world. Yeah. And for some people, that's actually the most motivating thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually freeing in many profound ways. The main reason I use freeing, by the way, has there's lots of, I play with it in the book, mm. but the main thing for me is freeing it from 100-year-old uh, monopoly laws. Yeah, And we, by the way, we need monopolies. We need utilities. I want to be absolutely clear that yeah. not only do they have a role, but we need them to survive and thrive through the transition that's inevitably going to happen to the industry and to them. But the laws are so 
over-the-top lockdown monopolies that yeah. it just doesn't allow for anything remotely like competition. And you, people will point to California. Listen, we opened up competition in California. Enron came in, it wrecked mm -hmm. it. California, the state almost went bankrupt. And that's the problem. That was zero to 50, right? So it's no competition, tons of competition. Yeah. I, I say to people that when you when they talk about that kind of competition, it's saying, Nico, you need to get in shape. And so your answer was, okay, why well, don't I get a complete heart, lung, and spleen transplant and that, see if that helps. So that's what they did, right? Say, Nico, just eat better, exercise a little more. You can do these small things that are obvious without changing the entire competitive landscape of the industry that are safer and more incremental. But unfortunately, it requires substantial mindset changes. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book so that people could realize that this is survivable. It's an amazing business opportunity, including mm. for the incumbents. But I suspect the incumbents will not be the biggest winners just because that's the bitter pill of being an incumbent. Yeah. Bill, you know, I'd love to hear your opinion. What do you believe are the two big breakthroughs that made the current electric grid possible? The most important invention Edison gifted the world with was the idea of a centralized grid sharing resources like a, in that case, a coal generator right. and lighting up a whole square mile of Manhattan with mm -hmm. one switch of a large coal generator and it fundamentally changed the economics of electricity. Yeah. Fundamentally. Previously, the only people that had electricity, like J.P. Morgan, he had his own coal plant in his own house. And so Edison just, and what the really key point that people miss about innovation, and I talk about this a lot in the book, is that it wasn't that he invented a light bulb. It was he didn't invent nearly anything that made the grid work. He pulled it all together. Right. And I love to and I love to point to Tesla's Model S, Elon Musk's contemporary company. There wasn't a single part in a Model S that you, the BMW and Ford didn't have access to. Yeah. He didn't invent some warp engine that no one else had. He just took all the existing parts and put them in, together in a way in his teams that no one had ever done and created arguably the best car ever mm. made. And Edison did the same thing. He put yeah. together parts that were available to everybody and he put them together in a second in a better way than anyone had ever thought about. And so there's too much focus on the latest science breakthrough and the latest gizmo that's gonna do something. And the people that will win in this coming decade or two are the people that take the existing parts and put them together in really creative ways. Right. And so that was the first big thing that made the grid possible. And the second one, which gets almost no credit, was the invention of the regulated monopoly. Right. And it's, it is so unique in the annals of business history and its success for going on 100 years, unchallenged in any way, is testament to the brilliance of the design. Although with things like solar and batteries, it's wildly outdated. But without a regulated monopoly, it's highly unlikely that the United States and most of the developed world would have electricity at the affordability and safety that we take for granted. And that invention changed the world. And he doesn't get a lot of credit for it. In fact, in many annals, he is a bad guy in the history of electricity. Yeah. And I had never heard of him. I was at dinner with Jim Rogers and he says, have you ever heard of Sam Insel? And I said, no. And he said, this is the guy you need to study. This yeah. is the guy that no one pays attention to. And he, we are all here because of him. And some people consider him a hero. Some people consider him a villain. Whatever you consider him to be, we wouldn't be here without him. And his story is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. And go forward, whatever he created has survived the test of time. But it needs to be changed now. Mm -hmm. And I think he would vociferously agree, by the way. I hate to put myself in his incredible shoes, mm -hmm. but I believe he would say, listen, dudes, it's time for at least some minor tweaks. The scale of investment for what many are referring to as climate tech, but we'll look at like just clean energy and, and infrastructure around clean energy is unprecedented. You map out in the book 
1956 to 1995, invested $550 billion in the U.S. highway system. Can you give a quick timeline between that and Energy Secretary Granholm's grand vision for the investment that we might see in clean energy from here to 2030? When I talk to people who are thinking about this industry or they're asking me, hey, man, why aren't you doing crypto or AI or something (laughs) that a software person like yourself should do? And the answer I always come back to is this is the one of, if not the biggest business opportunity in the history of humanity. And Amory Lovins, who I quote throughout the book, has a really wonderful Amory-esque way of describing it, mm-hmm. but it's a once in a civilization, it's a once in a species transition. And he said it in many different ways, but all of them get at the magnitude of this. And so many people are familiar with the wealth created and the change, the societal change that the broad tech industry, whether it's the internet or mobile phones or Facebook or Amazon, all grouped together, all of those companies over the last 25 years have taken in a total amount of venture investing at a trillion dollars last yeah. 25 years. Wow. And so that's an enormous amount of money. And when I tell people that the smallest estimate for the next 25 years in clean energy of investment is 15 trillion, and if the politicians actually decide to do something about this, it's more likely to be 25 to $30 trillion in the next 25 years. It's there's just no precedent. It's orders of magnitude larger than anything we've ever tried to do as a species. And the great thing is, because it's so politicized and because it, governments talk about it and they have giant COP conferences and all these things, which are critical, mm. but people put it in the same bucket, climate investment, they put it in the same bucket as healthcare and childcare and education and the military, mm-hmm. which are things where the government spends an enormous amount of money and they hope to make a better country, a better society. Right. And they hope in the decades or years and decades that follow that mm-hmm. higher education will create a higher benefit for citizens. And that's, so when clean energy falls into that, it gets, it loses the most important point. This isn't a make the country better. This is, I'm going to put in a dollar, I'm going to get a dollar 20 back. This that's isn't right. like anything else the government talks about doing. Yeah. This is something that actually was Uncle Ken's core argument. Wasn't it? Yes. He, he pointed to what many want to use as the whipping post of the clean tech industry, Solyndra, and the $500 million loan guarantee, which not just the government, but investors lost out on. And he, he quotes something, I'll, I'll use a different term for what you were just referring to, in healthcare, in education, it's rightly characterized as a handout because we want to lift people out of poverty. We want right. to improve provide, their lives. We want to provide a social... Uh, safety net. Uh, we want to improve their lives in a way that individually they can't possibly do. And while I would argue it's worthwhile, like we did in the last hundred years, invest in the personal safety net of having electricity in every home to make sure that we can reduce the number of, of deaths due to cold like we saw in Texas this, this past winter. You characterize it in the book, as you just said, an investment not a handout. It has a direct economic return. And people talk about the Solyndra, which is part of the loan program office, which is now run by our friend Jigger Shaw. Mm-hmm. That fund is, according to what I've read, has returned more than the average low-risk fund has returned to the government, to the citizens of the U.S. That fund was the reason Tesla survived in its early days. Right. That fund is the sole reason that the Georgia is still building the nuclear power plant, because while they lost $500 million on Solyndra, the government did, their bet on the Vogel power plant is over $10 billion. And uh, knock on wood, it'll work out and be successful, whereas the one, it's twin in South Carolina didn't, it was shut down and cost $10 billion. But 
that fund has done a lot of things that aren't just about solar and aren't just about handouts. It's intended to have a return, and I'm optimistic that will be one of the many things the U.S. government does to push this industry forward. But these are not handouts. Uh, some things are, but for the most part, these are investments that return direct financial dividends to the U.S. Yeah. Uh, US citizens. Yeah, in many ways, it's I'm from Durham. The triangle RTP is the, most people know this, it's the second largest billionaire or like uh, billion dollar or unicorn sector of venture investing in Didn't the world outside of Sand Hill Road. Did not know that. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's a bit like comparing, saying that, oh, venture capitalists shouldn't invest in healthcare because they're Ranos, right? If we can be fooled right. by Elizabeth Holmes, we can be fooled by anybody. That's spot on, Nico. And I have a whole chapter in my book, which was, it's called The Battle for Public Opinion. And I, this is where I did hundreds of spreadsheets and I climbed through data from all over the world and sourced it. I have over 400 uh, citations in the yeah. book. And if you actually go to some of those citations, it goes to the website where there's another 50 citations. So it's like thousands of sources that yeah. I cite. And I want to make a point so that if you don't believe it or, you're, or you want to share it, but you don't think your audience is going to believe you, yeah. you have as much supported data as you may see for mm. anything. Because there's so much I read about, particularly from environmental groups, where they make sweeping statements and they don't cite their sources. And then you go to the other extreme where you've got academic papers, which have so many sources and are written in a language that it's unnavigable. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to find, and hopefully it's not as common as I think it should be, to find a navigable but highly cited source for statements about what does it really cost to make solar versus coal versus mm. nuclear? Yeah. What is the waste left over when solar panels were tired? That's a mm. big one that people keep bringing up. If we go too much solar, we're going to be overflowing our landfills with solar panels when yeah. they're tired. If we retired every single solar panel we put in place in 2020, it would be one-tenth the waste that comes from tele from smartphones and TVs and computers. But so, can you say that again? So the category of e-waste, yeah. which is a tiny portion of overall municipal waste, yeah. If we retired all the solar panels in 2020 and we compared it to the e-waste of that year, it'd be one-tenth. I wish that we had the time to go through every chapter. The key concepts really center around a few things that I want to make sure that we do cover. Local energy, the, that this is a, co a concept around technologies, not fuels. You talk about economies of volume. You go into something that I think would be really interesting for us to extract and talk very specifically about. I think it's a model that you created called Five Orders. The, and then you mentioned not just the what you call BLEOs, big local energy opportunities, but specifically in chapters five and six, you go into, with the Five Orders, how one can think about disruption and innovation. So let's take a crack at the very first one. Your core thesis is that this is all really at its base about local energy. Can you help me understand what is local energy and why did, and how did you come to that as your main thesis for the book? There were tears and laying awake at night in that journey, because as I got into the book, a, a year into it, it became increasingly apparent that the power and intransigence of the existing utilities and I interviewed, in the first two years, I interviewed the CEO of Georgia Power, who impressed me. Yeah. And he had a great vision, and I thought he was a fine person. I was impressed with him and his acumen as a business person, but I could tell he had a worldview that he wasn't looking to embrace risky things that might make his business better, because there's 100 years of legislation in Georgia that says, don't do that, don't take risks. And so he was doing a wonderful job for the things he was being asked to do by his legislator and by his public utility commission. and. I became despondent because I was like, how can you innovate rapidly? How can you get venture investors to join an industry where it's gonna take 20 years? 
to get a return. And they have to spend two thirds of the money working with lobbyists and lawyers to get things through the regulatory process. And that's when I stumbled into local energy and I realized at first I was dismissive of rooftop solar because it's, it's, it still is a fragmented, relatively inefficient industry. But what I realized was those people could move on any axis they wanted. They could buy this solar panel or yeah. they could do solar tiles or they could buy a microinverter or a, a string inverter. They could create software. A Tesla makes Powerwall batteries that have gorgeous user interfaces. They could do anything. And all of a sudden there was a competitive market. And I started to see, and I, at that time, it was the very beginnings. Powerwall still hadn't shipped, but I was starting to see wasn't just here's some stuff we would like to sell to utility, to a utility, but you can buy it too for your roof. It started, people started saying, this is commercial and industrial, community scale solar. These are independent markets for where competition is actually happening. And then I got excited. And then I realized that's where the innovation is going to come in. And then I realized that's exactly what happened to computers. That's exactly what happened to media. That's exactly what happened to every other disruption. And if you read my favorite book in the world, Innovator's Dilemma from Clayton Christensen, that the last two words in the title of my book from the outside in, IBM and the other large companies were happily making their mainframes and selling them for what would be 10 or $20 million a day. And a bunch of hygiene optional kids in garages in Silicon Valley with greasy hair and soldering irons created what is today the dominant model for computing. And we're going to see those same kids in garages making systems for homes and villages in Africa and schools in Puerto Rico. And that kind of innovation is getting unleashed as we speak, Nico. That's what's happening now. And that's what I'm excited about. That's entirely what the book's about. See, I got excited about it because this is like my religion. I love it. I love it. Bill, along lines of the abundance of energy available, there's never before in history been a time where there were so many options to consumers and at such a scale and price, to your point, the Powerwall being at the higher end, there's so many options for consumers. You use this term consumerization when you discuss the rise of local energy. Can you help me understand how that fits in the picture in terms of scale and accessibility of this power and this technology? When I was thinking of the term consumerization, which is a term I've heard through my career, I think back to this, we were looking for a house in Raleigh a million years ago when I was a kid and the realtor was driving us around. She had a little telephone with a handset in her car. This would have been in the 80s, maybe the late 70s. And she could pick it up and she would talk to someone and say what number she wanted to yeah. dial. And this was mobile phones. Yeah. And only a very few people. Then you remember the Gordon Gecko, that big gray phone, right? So there's only a couple 10,000 of those made. And what happened ultimately was because of economies of volume, because of mass production, microcomputers, mobile phones, these all became widely available and affordable to everyone. And they also became easier and easier to use. Yeah. And so that concept of consumerization plays out in virtually every single technology market. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be a surprise to people that it's going to play out with solar and battery and yeah. local energy too. They're going to wake up and say, wait a minute, how did this become so mainstream? But yeah. I would argue that consumerization makes that an inevitability. Mm. Bill, we've talked a little bit about, in, in some cases, I, I would say the utilities right now are fish out of water. They are gasping for breath. They're trying to figure out where they fit in this new economy. You often refer to Clayton Christensen and the innovator's dilemma. A quote from that book resonates, I think, in this scenario, and I'd like to hear how you think it applies for the utilities specifically. He says, the reason is that, and he's pointing to the reason for failure, the reason is that good management itself was not the root cause. Managers played the game the way it was supposed to be played. The very decision-making and resource allocation processes that 
are key to the success of established companies are the very processes that reject disruptive technologies. Listening to customers, tracking competitors' actions carefully, investing resources to design and build higher performance and higher quality products that yield greater profit. These are the reasons why great firms stumbled or failed when confronted with disruptive technological change. I found a quote and I put it in the book and it basically said that it's very hard to convince a man uh, to change his mind about something when doing so takes money out of his wallet. And, and that is the heart of disruptions. People have economic incentives to continue doing what's worked for them. And that's why Clayton Christensen's book is so profound because he mapped out why companies are incredibly successful with their customers who are doing a magnificent job of meeting their customers' needs are also the most likely to be disrupted by outside forces. And I saw this at IBM when I worked there. These gigantic customers that are paying IBM tens of millions of dollars a year. Yeah. And they love the fact they can get all the different products, hardware, software, services, mm -hmm. all from one company. And they come back to IBM year after year and saying, we like the breadth of things that you do. And we're happy to pay a premium to have one company to do it all. And that is IBM's business. The problem is that those same customers in the future years are going to probably shift into things like cloud computing like Amazon's introduced. But day to day, they really love what IBM does. And this is what Clayton Christensen uncovered and shared, which is that if you do the thing that you're supposed to do for your customers, listen to them and deliver what they want, you are likely to get disrupted if you're anywhere near a technology business because technologies will change. Outsiders will come in and they will offer something that you would almost have to put yourself out of business to compete with. And there's all kinds of prescriptions in his book, but how to navigate that as an incumbent. Hmm. But that applies to industries from steam shovels to uh, hard drives in his book. But every one of those industries had opportunities to be innovative in the end mm. that the utilities do not because all of them were legally allowed to innovate if they chose to. Oh, yeah. And they most chose not to, uh, which is why almost no steam shovel companies ended up being in the, the giant hydraulic bucket business. Right. But they could have. Mm. In the utility industry, they are in many ways legally bound to the business model and the incremental decisions they make today. So it's not just that the utilities, I, I, when I was writing this book, Nico, a lot of people I interviewed wanted to make the utilities to be the bad guys. And there are so many books where the utilities right. are painted as this obstructionist to the future. But if you sit down and look at it, I have a great fun interview in the book about a public utility commissioner named uh, Bubba McDonald that I interviewed. And I've interviewed many others that didn't mm -hmm. make the book. And they're doing what the legislators are telling them to do, and they're telling the utilities what to do. And even if you had a utility that wanted to be really innovative and take risks, they had to convince even more conservative, not politically conservative, but risk-averse utility regulators to, to follow along. And that's a, tough. So utilities have all kinds of reasons to continue on what they've been doing for 100 years. Yeah. And a lot of resistance to change, which is why most of the change is going to come from the outside in. And I think many utilities will finally see it and your regulators will see it and they'll get on board, but many will fight it to the end. Yeah. That's amazing. Bill, I love that as a creative leader technologist who's seen a breadth of technological application that most of us would dream of, you've already been able to establish that you can learn an industry by researching it well and building based on first principles frameworks of thinking that not only guide your own sense of direction when you approach that new industry, but have served and will serve 
others who are trying to find that direction. I find that with writers such as yourself, there's a trend or a tendency towards creating bespoke models that help to convey the narrative and also creating words that uh, are helpful for folks to sort of attach to. You used a word we've referred to a couple of times, Solyndra here, and you used the word clean apocalypse to kind of refer to the, the Solyndra period, right? A few years where venture invested billions of dollars and observers effectively concluded that clean tech wasn't a fit for venture capital. Yet you saw more than 3,000 deals at Greylock. You bought dozens of companies in your history as a CEO. And for those who read the book, chapters five and six for me kind of represent the distillation of that entrepreneurial mindset. Help me understand the need for creating a new framework within which we can package the scale the end and and the roots and the branches of this of the growth of this industry and you call them orders so er, early on i reached out to a lot of venture capitalists through my network having been in that industry who had focused on clean tech and the clean apocalypse was this was in 2017 and it was still hanging there like a car wreck mm. in, in the near in, right next to them and they felt they were pioneers because everyone was telling them clean energy was a terrible idea and why were they still doing it? Hadn't mm -hmm. they learned no lesson? I even had friends of mine from venture capital saying, dude, why are you doing clean energy? There's so many things <laughs> if you want to be an investor or write about an industry, why clean energy, clean apocalypse blew up. It's not a good place for venture capital. And as I talked to some of the people that were actively investing in the industry, I found that there was a lack of clarity on how to think about the way that capital flows into these companies. And so I started thinking, there, I looked everywhere. Who's got a simple model to describe the, the myriad of ways that you can actually, the way that capital flows through different segments of the industry. So if you're an installer, your capital flows are largely around labor and soft services. If you're making solar cells in China, your capital is entirely about building a huge factory and hoping in three to five years, the standards don't change so you can get your money back. I didn't see anybody clarifying these differences. So I came up with, and this has been a professional strategist at IBM and mm. worked briefly at McKinsey and did this at the company I ran called IXL, put some formal strategy to it. And I came up with this thing called the five orders, which to a person who's a professional strategist, they're going to yawn and say, okay, sure, fine. But I've been really pleasantly surprised the number of people who have read this and say, that's a really cool idea. And so it's, I can just tell you, it's standard business strategy applied in the context of clean energy. Mm -hmm. For the strategy people there, it's simply a value chain. I'm going to pause you for a second because there are folks here listening right now who I want to make sure you're running and you're distracted. Pay attention because <laughs> you also are an adjunct professor or a weekend professor at a university or you're a college student, and this is going to benefit you greatly. So just pay attention right now. In many industries, the value chain isn't really clear, especially in the tech software space, but it's actually much more clear in clean energy, particularly at this point in time. And so the orders are basically the steps through the value chain. And I, in my own mind, think of them as, as layers on a pyramid, mm. although it's layers on a, a, a vertical rectangle. And just in brief, the, the first order is when you make stuff, it's components, mm. solar cells, batteries. Second order is when you, you tie them together, it's integrations. And yeah. this is one that I wanted to really highlight, I highlighted earlier, because 
people don't give this a lot of credit. This is actually where I think the most exciting products are gonna come, taking yeah. existing stuff off the shelf and putting it together, yeah. like Tesla did with the Model S, we Thomas Edison did with the grid. Yeah, we referred to it earlier. The second is, order, yeah. right? But then you have a new product, but then if that product's turned into a service, that becomes a third order. So if you buy a home and you rent it out, that you've turned it into a third order business. So the grid is the, one of the biggest third order businesses in the world. They put all these assets in, they integrate all these components and they sell it to us a kilowatt hour at a time. That's a third order. Now we're getting to the point, everything up to this point has been traditional asset intensive, capital intensive businesses. And this domain of loans and clever financing models and government policy affects this kind of thing, tax equity. But when you start to get above the third order, is where venture capitalists start to get really interested. Yeah. So the fourth order is in the world of software, and I think increasingly in every industry, the single best business to be is the platform. So I think the ultimate original platform is a flea market. <laughs> you pay $20 to have a table on the yeah, weekend, and then you sell your stuff. Yeah. And sometimes you have to give them a percentage. Probably the most lucrative fourth order model is Apple's App Store, right? They do nothing other than approvals and they make a fortune yeah. and it's being fought about in law in, in courts right now about how much they can make. Yeah. But they just said, hey, Stephen Jobs said, I guess we can let third party people put stuff on this phone. And now it's probably the most profitable thing Apple does. Yeah. And they own the platform. And that is the role that utilities, it may take decades, but they're gonna figure out well, that's an incredibly sexy place. We may not make as much revenue, but our profits are gonna be through the roof. We're gonna be choreographing electrons. We're gonna be the electron marketplace. I think that utilities are going to start in 2022 looking at some of the companies that our friends are getting funded right now, like Arcadia, and think, wait a minute, that's my business. That's yeah. my platform. And again, this is why I love business, Nico. This is why when everybody else wants to talk about sports and who got drafted and they want to talk about politics, I love, love, love talking about business models. Yeah. Among my closest friends, their heads will spin. I want to talk business models. I mean, the similarities between what the utilities will need to do compared to what AT&T did mm. when they, they used to sell long distance minutes. That was their business, right? right? And that's effectively cost zero today. So they moved to becoming a platform. And if you remember back in the old days of mobile phones, they had something called WAPDEX, yeah. which is where these numbers, and it was horrible. And they thought they were going to control the content and they couldn't, it got outside of them. This ability to become the platform is artful and difficult, well, but there's no better way to generate exciting growth. And this is what venture capitalists love. We'll stay in, in the telecom industry because I think it's important for people to think about analogs, right? What is analogous to this? And just in the telecom industry, Comcast, obviously, and AT&T, but Verizon, a lot of folks don't realize the number of businesses that are built like Boost Mobile on Verizon's yes. network. And that Verizon gets effectively like a franchise fee from. Verizon is a utility. They're a telecom utility, right? Comcast is a utility. They're an entertainment utility. Right. Who are going to be the utilities of electrons moving forward? That's what we're discussing. That's the disruption that's happening. Man, I, I, I won't even get started on this because <laughs> this is my catnip. I love talking about this yeah. stuff because where Verizon has struggled, they weren't really a platform by my definition. They mm. were just making their assets available as a service to third parties. Ooh. But essentially what they were doing was a they're low a margin. Yes, they're a rental business. <laughs> and what you want to be they struggled and missed entirely. They wanted to be Netflix. Yeah, that was. But, but they turned into Hertz. And they, yeah, <laughs> beautiful, exactly. You get it, right? And and they have tried with the uh, various laws and campaigning and things like that to try to get more control over the stuff that goes through their platform. But ultimately, the horses left the barn. They, mm -hmm. They're not going to get it back. So then, AT and T buys HBO, and they try to get into the side door. 
and uh, but they're not good at it. Uh, it's not part of their culture. Mm. I watched that at IBM when we were really good at some things culturally, and the whole company had the ethos of doing some things really well, but we tried to do new things like sell software services, and they struggled with it because they had every bit of the company from right. how we do maintenance, how we recognize revenue, how we can send salespeople didn't fit. And Verizon and AT&T struggled to move to this new model. Yeah. And the utilities are going to have a struggle that's going to make AT&T look like a walk in the park because they have so much, they have so many assets. They have so much legislation and regulation for them to move to this fourth order platform, which they will eventually do, but it's going to be very challenging. Yeah, And it's gonna be fun watching those jurisdictions in the world where they lean into it and they actually realize that choreographing electrons is Danny Kennedy yeah. gave me that phrase. I love it. That's where the big money is going to be. That's where the big profits are going to be. Yeah. And that's where the venture capital is going to go. Mm-hmm. So the final, let me just finish the final, yeah. the final fifth order is one that's, it's really, it's a bit existential. I like to tell the story of Uber. So once upon a time there was an app store and on it was thousands of apps and this, this company called Uber puts an app, the thousandth and first app on the app store. And you could go there and you could call an Uber. It's a platform. <clears throat> and so that was where the story could end. Yeah. But I have the statistics, numbers, and stories in the book about how Uber didn't just become a platform for car owners to monetize it, which was a phenomenal business. Right. It actually leapt into an entirely unrelated industry. And then it became a fifth order, full on absolute disruption. And over the course of 10 years, we watched taxi trips go down and we watched Uber trips go up, but the Uber experience was so positive and accessible, something taxis couldn't do. By the way, taxis were our regulated monopoly that the total number of ride shares that went up was like four or five times higher than the taxi industry had ever achieved on its own. Yeah, That is a phenomenal example of disruptions. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're gonna see with local energy systems participating in the electricity industry. I'd say- by any account, certainly Uncle Ken would agree that you are a convert. And like many of us, uh, you have a very optimistic view. What scares you? I wrote about it in the opening of chapter seven. It's called Utilities Versus the Future. There was a shadowy group called NERA, the New England Ratepayers Association. And they've never disclosed who funded them, but they went all the way to the, the national group that oversees the grid. It's called FERC. And they made a tremendous effort to convince FERC that net metering, which is the way that most people are compensated to make their solar payback in a reasonable period of time, they wanted to basically nationalize that and in effect, remove the amount of money that consumers were paid for their excess solar yeah. and put it down to a very small number. Mm-hmm. And had that passed, it would have destroyed this growing local solar. And now California's actually likely to do the same thing that the NERA advocates wanted to have happen, which is they're going to slash the amount of money that consumers get paid for the excess solar they put back in the grid. And this is something you and I could talk for two hours about. And it's, it is the most naked, yet not seen as such, but it's the most naked sort of power grab by proponents of the incumbents that I've ever seen. And even the people who advocate for local solar don't get it. Yeah, no, I've done three episodes on this. Yes, and I've listened to several of them. They're yeah, excellent. Yeah, Carl Robico, who who you and I have both had on the show. I'm glad you brought this up, and I'd forgotten that you'd covered it in the book. We first did an episode with Solar United Neighbors because they were really mm-hmm. strong, staunch proponents to what was happening with NERA. And I would really encourage you all, there is a ton of resources, and we'll link to them, but get smart on what's happening with the attack on net energy metering because it, it's not 
explicitly the attack on net energy metering, but it's an attack on our rights as citizens to have the choice that we've been given and to be able to disrupt the utility model, the incumbent deregulated or the, the incumbent regulated model, right? Y yes. And there's this argument, again, I, I don't want to go too deep on it, and the, we've covered so much, hmm. but there's this argument that the utility industry and their supporters call cost shifting. Oh, yes. And what it has effectively done, and I think I've got some pretty interesting takes that I've not heard or seen anywhere else, that they have effectively pitted advocates for the poor against advocates for the environment. You basically have, the utilities have their research reports they've paid people to do. And I'm sure it's well-intentioned. I don't think it's malicious or false, but they have found the math and they generalize it so people can understand it. Say basically, if I, wealthy person, put solar on my roof, then my neighbor who isn't wealthy, he or she has to pay for the grid. And therefore they're paying more and that particularly acute for low-income families. The argument the punchline of it is rich people have solar, poor people are paying for it. Yeah. Classic uh, false equivalence. Yeah. And the brilliance of this reminds me of the movie, The Usual Suspects. There's so many great <clears throat> quotes in that movie. Oh, yeah. But I think one of them, if I recall it, is that the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince people it didn't exist. Yeah. And utilities are definitely not devils. They're wonderful people. But that metaphor is that nowhere in the argument about cost shifting is the third party, which is utilities. Yeah. No one's saying, gosh, we don't really, even if cost shifting, which I argue is, and I've seen some brilliant work that says it doesn't even exist, but even yeah. if we ex accept that it exists, it's not a question of low-income families and wealthy families. There's a third party involved, which mm -hmm. is called utilities. And so all these legislators and public utility commissioners in California are worried about harming low-income people. Yeah. There's not a single conversation. Gosh, what happens if we just reduce utility profits by half a percent? Could that fix everything? Right. That's not a conversation anybody's having. Mm -hmm. And I think if they get in, I'm sure it's been had in the rare conference sure. rooms and things, and there's some existential arguments you can make either way. Mm -hmm. But the fact that it's a public, people think this is either or, wealthy people or poor people. Yeah. And no one's saying, what about super wealthy corporations that are guaranteed profits by the government? Maybe they should have some skin in the game. Yeah. And the funny thing is, if you look at the lost money in California or the United States from solar, it's half in 2019 of the money that the utilities lost because of LED light bulbs. Mm. So the efficiency of LED light bulbs as the U.S. shifts over to those actually costs utilities about twice as much in lost revenue right. as solar panels. Wow. But you don't see utilities going to their public utility commissioners and the lobbyists and saying, you need to stop uh, LED light bulbs. We don't want them anymore because it's cost shifting. The people that put up LED light bulbs, they're pushing all this cost on the people that can't. And guess what, by the way? LED light bulbs skew just the same on the low-income, high-income as solar does. Yeah. Low-income company, I've seen the statistics, I didn't put it in the book, but low-income families tend to buy fewer LED light bulbs proportionally because it's higher upfront cost. And But no one talks about the LED cost shifting issue. The other cost shifting issue is the cost to pull power mm. miles and miles and maintain these power lines. Right. But in, in the dense city of Atlanta, where I live or outside of, it costs very little to deliver power. So those people in Atlanta are basically subsidizing cost shifting yeah. at a much, much higher level than solar panels. Wow. And so cost shifting happens all the time. This is not like the first time the utility industry is dealing with it. The reason that cost shifting and net metering matters so much is of all the things I just discussed, of all the cost shifting that actually happens every day in the utility industry, 
Local energy is the only one where the utilities are actually losing control. Yeah, I'll make, an, I'll make a quick connection here to something you said earlier, which is our friend Andy Klump, and it's an equivalent. And this is how I really believe, going back to the original question, what scares you is that our industry writ large is under attack for all the reasons that we've outlined in this episode. And it, it, it brings to mind for me a very present example, and we don't have the breadth or scope right now to, to talk about it, but as by way of what scares us in the industry and how our industry is being attacked, we both did episodes with our friend Andy Klopp on our, on our podcasts about the WRO and how oddly the solar industry, which is a huge user of silicon, is being attacked on the the subject of forced labor, among a few other things, and it's getting caught up in this WRO, but you don't see fair treatment, if it, as it were, across other product categories that use the same substrate. They use the same product yes. from the same places, from the same polysilicon factories. And it's a, I think it's a great example of how the idea that the solar industry gets attacked for cost shifting, but Home Depot doesn't, is a great example of Nira, just like unknown dark parties that are working their dollars against an industry that is going to massively disrupt. And the part that's so frustrating is if we ever did find out who's funding NERA, there's a very good likelihood it's the utilities or through, it's basically started with utilities. Yeah. And the the electric bill that I pay is funding. That's the irony. That This is a growing idea. It's been picked up in the media really as recently as 2021, where people are realizing that the utility lobbying for the most part, is being paid by the bills. And some lobbying is, is important. They need to understand there are issues with solar. We can't just go whole hog without... Yeah. So some of it's legitimate, but when it's very much, when it's against local energy, to me, yeah. it's this utility versus me. And I feel like having my electricity bills that I do pay, the utility, used to fund something that's not in my best interest and right. keeping my neighbor from being less likely to have solar on her house... That to me is an issue, and I think it's going to get called out. A fun fact, one of the most fun facts in the book that people are always surprised to hear, and I cited this in several sources because it's so easy to say. Bill Gates said it once, and he never cited it. I, I spent weeks tracking this down. If you look at all the industries, SIC codes in the United States, including used car dealerships and fast food restaurants and school bus manufacturing, the lowest single industry in the United States for research and development is the utility, electric utility industry. The electric utility spends less than 0.1% of its revenue on research and development. Wow. And that's interesting by itself. Less than? Less than 0.1%. Wow. But there's another stat that I found in a completely different location, and I cite it multiple ways. If you look at all the industries and all the SIC codes in the United States, for federal lobbying, utilities are the third largest federal lobbyists. So the lowest R&D and the third largest federal lobbyist. But if you stop for a moment and consider that utilities are almost entirely legislated at the state level, there's very little federal legislation affecting it. And state legislation, I learned, there's no lobby disclosure laws in most states. So it's a fairly good bet that utilities are the single largest lobbyists of any industry, simultaneously the lowest R&D of any industry. And so again, <laughs> we need utilities, they're critical but they have a system, a setup. A, they have the best deal ever. Yeah. And they are brilliant. They fund Little League teams. And that's wonderful because Little League teams couldn't afford uniforms if it wasn't for utilities. And I think the people that work at utilities, I've met many, they're really good people. And they believe that they're helping the communities and using the profits they get to do these things yeah. that matter. That being said, it bears 
examination, and it, we need to be asking whether there are some ways we could tweak and improve that model that will better serve the future of the country and the world, and much more importantly, better serve the customers like you and me in the way when FDR and others struck the deal with Insul to create the regulated mm-hmm. monopolies. I don't think anyone would have been okay on the government side with the degree of one-sided power the utilities have in these discussions today. It needs to be reset. Slowly and carefully. Bill, what's something that you've changed your mind about as a result of writing the book? There were two things that are small in comparison to the scope of the book, but I was really surprised about. And they're just sitting there in the numbers and the data that should be common knowledge. Mm -hmm. No matter how bad everyone thinks coal is, coal is so much worse. The best thing that ever happened to coal was everyone decided it was a CO2 bad boy. Yeah, Coal is so much worse than that. Mm. And so when people talk about carbon capture with coal, it's kind of like putting a Band-Aid on mm-hmm. an artery wound. Wow. And the coal ash, and I talk a lot about this, is it's just so nasty. We just right. need to stop it. Unfortunately, it's going to stop because the economics are terrible. Yeah. That's the one thing. Then the other one that surprised me when I looked at the hard numbers and I talked to experts was I had two big surprises about nuclear. One was that all the things that we are generally scared of about nuclear actually aren't all that scary. You and I could have, as I understand it, have a, a couple of uranium in our hand and be fine. Mm. It's not nasty. It's when it comes out the other end that it's plutonium and other things that's a problem. Yeah. But that's pretty manageable. So I actually ended up, as I researched it, being a lot more open to nuclear than I thought. But then I read paper after paper and talked to expert after expert. Nuclear is three or four times more expensive than solar. Mm. Yeah. It's not intermittent. That's good. Yeah. But nuclear is probably more expensive today than solar plus battery, and nuclear is most certainly going to be more expensive than solar plus battery in five years. Right. And the time it takes to make nuclear. So I turned from being a little negative on nuclear to, hey, this is actually really good. It's not nearly as nasty as I thought it was to the, but as a business, it's terrible. Right. And that was the two biggest surprises. Mm. The ethos of how you are now putting this to work, not waiting for the book to finish is embodied in the business name that you chose for your company, Solar Inventions. The best way to predict the future is to invent it. Bill Nussie is the career CEO with 30 plus years of experience running VC-backed tech companies, multiple exits, including IPOs. And he most recently launched ventures aimed at accelerating the world's shift to clean energy. I hope that you crying. (laughs) Wow, didn't expect that. But his most recent accolade is a book called Freeing Energy. It's on shelves right now and you can read it. I think you should. Hope you will. I hope you'll come back and tell us your story on Suncast. All right, Solar Warrior. Well, that's a wrap on this short tactical Tuesday, although it's not particularly short compared to some of the other tactical Tuesdays, but it definitely is a shorter version of, as I mentioned before, our longer version, episode 421, that goes deep, deep, deep in the rabbit hole of so many intriguing topics with Bill Nussie. If you enjoyed this short version, well, you should go ahead and queue up episode 421 because you're going to absolutely love it. And if you're eager to keep learning, well, not only can you, my fellow Philomath, find resources from this discussion and every other Suncast discussion for that matter, plus social media links and recommendations for how to learn more about Bill Nussie and his friends over at the blog at mysuncast.com. Just click on the episodes. And you can also go check out Bill's podcast. It's all over at freeingenergy.com. And of course, as we said, and as should be linked right there in the description and certainly in the blog, you can buy Bill's book now. It 
got to number one in energy on Amazon over the week last week as it went into pre-order status. So I hope that you will help us continue to fuel Bill Nussie's rocket ship charge up the charts and Amazon. We'd like to get him on the number one new release list, not just the energy list. So do yourself a favor and go pick up a copy of Freeing Energy. Hey, since I know you're going to be online, would you mind taking some time and jump over to LinkedIn as well? Share this episode with someone that you think would learn from it, but also give a comment and a little thumbs up to my post or perhaps Bill's post on this episode. Let us know what you've learned. Let us know how this shaped or perhaps shook your understanding of the clean energy transition. I hope that it did that for you. And I'd love to know who do you think needs to hear this story? I hope that you'll continue to tune in to Suncast. And if you do so this Thursday, you'll meet a new friend of mine, Mitchell Samulian from Tonyan Renewables. He and his merry band of uh, of O&M specialists are reshaping the way operations and maintenance is done at utility scale for the renewables industry. And I'm super happy to have Mitchell on the show. He is a longtime energy pioneer and veteran. I want to thank once again our sponsors who help make this show free to you each and every week. You can find out more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. More importantly, if you would like to help reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions just like yourself twice a week. Well, you can learn how to do that at mikesuncast.com forward slash sponsor as well. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>